This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'd like to welcome all of you to today's Coverly Lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek. I'm the Dean of the School of Education, and I'm just absolutely thrilled to see um, all of you here this afternoon. We are extremely fortunate to have two exceptional gentlemen who will discuss education, poverty, and democracy in Latin America. I think the size of the audience uh, reflects the importance of this topic for the world and even and for us in the United States. Before we begin, I'm going to tell you a little more about these gentlemen. Um, but just before I do, I do want to tell you just a little bit about the history of the Coverly Lecture. This series is named after the School of Education's first dean, Elwood Coverly, who is a major benefactor of our school. The series has been in place since uh, Elwood Coverly's original endowment in 1933 for the School of Education building and was established to encourage discussion about current issues in education. We certainly have one today. After the interview, um, you're going to have a chance to ask some, some questions. We'll have mics on the side and uh, uh, one that will be passed around for you. Um, and then following the lecture, uh, there will be receptions out in the hall for all of us. Let me tell you a little bit about our two speakers this evening. Alejandro Toledo was president of Peru from 2001 to 2006. And I cannot tell you how much pleasure it gives me to just kind of casually drop into conversations. Oh, one of our alumni, alumni was uh, president of Peru. <laughs> I always try to do it very subtly and very casually, so it doesn't seem. President Toledo describes himself as a statistical fluke. He's probably been called a lot of things, but <laughs> that's an interesting self-description. He came from a family of 16 children living modestly in a small port in the village of Chipote. He started to work as a shoeshine boy at the age of seven. Supported partly by a soccer scholarship and a job pumping gas, he enrolled at the University of San Francisco he found his way south to Stanford to complete not one, not two, but three degrees here. He met his wife, Eliane, while he was at Stanford. So Alejandro, that was a real good move, <laughs> both professionally and personally, and certainly for Stanford. President Toledo put his expertise in economics and education to use in a variety of government governmental and academic settings, which eventually led to him becoming the first person of Indian descent to serve as the president of Peru. He's made us proud, and he's been widely praised for many environmental, educational, public health, and economic improvements that took place in Peru under his leadership. It occurred to me that this synopsis is sort of sounding like the complete works of Shakespeare, unabridged, you know, 90 minutes. I'm leaving out just a few things. He went from a shoeshine-er to a president in just three sentences. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> but maybe we'll get some of the details as the evening progresses. Um, and I haven't even started to tell you about his current writing projects and work with countries around the globe where he's working on democratic reforms. He is a tireless and revered worker for change related to the topics that we're going to be discussing tonight. Larry Diamond is also well respected as an expert on tonight's topic, which is surprising given that he's only written 30 books <laughs> examining democracy in countries around the world. Among those who consider him an authority on democracy in developing countries are the World Bank, the United Nations, USAID, and the US State Department. All of them have sought his advice. Some of them have even taken it. Not the last two. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> In 2004, he served as senior advisor and governance to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. 
His views, it turns out, I didn't know about this part, are also sought out by Hollywood. When his book, Squandered Victory, which is about bringing democracy to Iraq, was published in 2005, he was on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. So now you know he really is very famous. <laughs> like President Toledo, Larry Diamond is one of our rock stars. All of his degrees are from Stanford, which of course means that Stanford can take all the credit for these gentlemen's accomplishments. <laughs> and we do. For a brief period in the 80s, uh, Larry taught sociology at Vanderbilt University, but fortunately for us, he found his way back to Stanford, as did President Toledo. Uh, I know both men are going to be able to take any questions that you toss them. Uh, Larry recently encountered a few 400-pound gorillas in Rwanda. Um, Alejandro has faced gorillas in the form of political opposition and public opinion polls, so anything we bring up this evening should be comparatively mild to what they've experienced in the recent past. Uh, but before we get to your questions, we have the privilege of hearing President Toledo's responses to Professor Diamond's, I hope, very tough questions. It's my great pleasure to turn the mic over to President Toledo and Professor Diamond. Uh, well, thank you, Dean Stipek, uh, for that extremely uh, eloquent uh, introduction of Alejandro Toledo and uh, your very kind words about myself. I'm going to begin by saying a few words uh, about President Toledo, how I came to know him, and how uh, and why I'm so excited to have the chance to share with you some of the conversation we've been having over uh, the last 10 months or so about the issues that will be posed here tonight. Uh, about a year ago, I began working on a new book about democracy, The Spirit of Democracy, which will be published uh, next January. Uh, and what I found in working on this book um, was a, a duality with which I think many of you are familiar. On the one hand, globally, and it's very much true in Latin America, there's been really astonishing progress toward the advance of democracy at the level of formal institutions, multi-party elections, and certainly improvements in freedom uh, and uh, the ability of people to participate uh, in politics and public life. But that goes with, uh, in many countries, and indeed in much of Latin America, very high levels of dissatisfaction with the way democracy is working, of frustration, uh, if not disillusionment. Uh, and uh, some of the understanding we have of this comes from a growing wealth of public opinion survey data that's being done all over the world, uh, but systematically over the last uh, 12 years by the Latino Barometro uh, in Latin America, uh, which includes most of the major democracies of the continent. And that survey has shown over the last decade or so reasonable uh, but still somewhat disappointing levels of support for democracy, generally ranging between 50 and 60 percent, uh, and some more positive things and some more negative things. On the one hand, Latin Americans understand, and indeed fully three-quarters of them say, that democracy may have its problems, but it's the best system of government, and that the only way to become a developed country, two-thirds of them say, is through the political institutions of democracy and the rule of law. On the other hand, as we see in other regions, uh, the politicians uh, and those who govern uh, in many Latin American states are not providing the level of democracy, good governance, rule of law, social justice that people want and that tell, uh, they tell surveyors that they want. Just to give you a few more statistics, fully 70% of Latin Americans see little or no equality before their country's laws. Over two-thirds think their government serves the interest of powerful groups rather than all the people. As a result, there's very little confidence in politicians, in public institutions, in political parties, uh, in the Congress, as Alejandro Toledo himself discovered when he inherited the shattered mess of a post-authoritarian situation left behind by a deeply venal president, uh, Alberto Fujimori, who had ruled 
as a quasi-dictator for over a decade, and his really sinister uh, intelligence chief, as, who, as you know, had insinuated himself and corrupted nearly every major institution in Peru, uh, Vladimir Montesinos. Uh, and this situation may have been behind the dozens upon dozens of death threats Alejandro Toledo received during those years of the late 1990s and leading up to the fateful uh, 2000 and 2001 political events and election that ultimately brought this dedicated, idealistic, and professional political reformer, professional economist, uh, and democratic and human rights champion, Alejandro Toledo, to the presidency. Now, uh, I discovered um, in uh, interviewing him uh, that he wasn't entirely satisfied with his own presidency. It was, in many uh, respects, a remarkable uh, success, uh, particularly in terms of the macroeconomic picture. Uh, he has been highly praised uh, by observers of Latin American democracy and development for what he did to steady a really um, uh, traumatized country and an uncertain economy. Uh, he shrank the annual fiscal deficit to almost nothing from over 3% of GDP. He reduced the rate of non-performing loans in the banking sector by 80%. Foreign investment poured in. Economic growth averaged over 5% a year. Uh, and the country began a path out of a very uh, traumatic period in its history. But that was with only modest progress, not no progress, but modest progress in other things he cares about as someone who himself, I think the introduction probably understated this, uh, emerged out of a situation of deep personal poverty, family poverty. Uh, his efforts at governance reduced absolute poverty in Peru by one quarter, and infant uh, and child mortality as well. Uh, but that um, was not uh, all that he had hoped for. Um, he discovered that um, uh, there's more to building democracy and governing than economic understanding, democratic commitment, and good intentions. Uh, and I discovered in talking to him uh, a grand and I think uh, inspiring vision for what that is. So I'm not gonna preempt it, I'm going to draw it out. So Alejandro, let me begin by asking you. It's um, a year plus since you left the presidency in the summer of 2006. We've been fortunate to have you here first up at the Center on uh, for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, and now this year, I'm very pleased to say, at our Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. I know you've done a, uh, quite a bit of deep thinking and reflection, both on your presidency and on the challenges facing democracy and development uh, in Latin America. Uh, and I know you are playing a leadership role in drawing other former presidents of Latin America into this conversation. So at this point, 15 months later, how do you see the challenge of democratic development and consolidation in Latin America? And in particular, how do you link that to what you've called the social agenda? First of all, Larry, I will not answer your question. <laughs> okay. Before I share with you and with the audience uh, the following reflection. I'm deeply proud that it has been 37 years since I first touched the walls of this School of Education and Stanford University. And I'm very proud of having passed through here. And it has shaped my life in more than one way. And for that reason, Deborah, now is your turn, but please pass it around that I'm deeply proud to have been studying at the School of Education at Stanford University. And I will tell this to the rest of my life that some of my professors here, to whom I owe a lot. Secondly, 
I want to thank uh, the Friedman Spokley Institute and the Center for Democracy and the Rule of Law, as well as the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Science and the School of Education, who have been kind enough to take me away from such a deep, troubled waters of the presidency. <laughs> let, me, let me answer your question, Larry, by being uh, deliberately provocative in, by saying that we Latin Americans over the last 60 years, we have been very prolific in inundated in libraries with a diagnosis of our problem. Mm -hmm. But we also have the collaboration of Latin Americanists who have contributed to this inundation of the diagnosis of the problem. Um, I want to go with the risk that that implies. I want to go one step further. I'm here to share the proposition based on your question. That never before, like now, Latin America as a region has the enormous opportunity to make a significant jump and place itself in a very preferential place in the world economy. Never before, like now, for internal and exogenous regions, reasons, the region now has an incredible opportunity of making a substantial jump to have a preferential place in the world economy. And let me substantiate why do I think this. Number one, the region's economy is growing in the last five years at an average of 5%. Sustainable. Number two, the internal composition of economic growth is changing. We are no longer dependent as much in exporting traditional products, gold, silver, copper, oil, gas, or fish meal. We are now exporting grapes, mangoes, asparagus that are labor intensive and that make us less dependent on changes in the prices of the international market for raw materials. Three, we have, in the last 60 years, accumulated a stock of human resources of considerable magnitude, although there is still much to be walked forward. Unfortunately, they are all scattered all over the world. But if we have a deliberate policy, we can rescue just as much Israel and rescue a lot of people mm -hmm. to build what Israel is today. Fifth, we, have, we open up markets. Now we have China. Peru is placing Peruvian grapes in the Chinese table. And as I told you before, my friend, I'm not very ambitious. I just want 5% of the Chinese market. <laughs> If you add it to that, to China, 1.3 billion people. You added 1 billion people of India, you have 2.3 billion. Consumers. Consumers. I think the region is ready to play in a big field. However, this great opportunity, this great opportunity is not free of major challenges that I think that we have the capacity to overcome if we adopt the role of a state policy, of a leadership, rather than just a politician. I want to make a distinction between a leader and a politician, from my point of view anyway. A leader is who has the, the courage to make state, national decisions 
thinking in the next generation rather than making government policy thinking in the next election. I know that the first decision takes long, particularly when you're talking about investment on the key variables for fighting poverty, inequality, and social exclusion. I'm referring to nutrition, mm -hmm. health, education, and decent, decent jobs. Part of the challenge is reducing poverty in the region, inequality, and social exclusion. It is inconceivable that a region such as Latin America with 500 million people, 40% of them live below the poverty line. And 18% live below the extreme poverty line. And this is measured by income. And as most of people here know, that income is not the best measurement of poverty. There is early malnutrition, infant mortality, performance at schools, mm -hmm. dropouts. But if we are able to reduce poverty in a significant way, and I'm sure we can do it if we make state houses, if we can reduce, in addition to poverty, reduce inequality, Latin America is not the poorest region of the world. It's Africa. Mm -hmm. But it's the most unequal region of the whole world. The difference between those who have and have not is very wide. I don't know how it is in this country, but I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> I'm talking about Latin America. If we're able to reduce poverty, reduce the inequality, and eliminate social exclusion, I'm sure we can make a progress to take advantage of this enormous opportunity for the region to make a, a jump to be in a preferential place in the world economy. If we are able to do that, Larry, I think that we can assure sustained rates of economic growth over time. Mm -hmm because it will be less noise in the Latin American streets, which will attract capital investment, which will guarantee sustained rates of economic growth that is an indispensable component for any poverty reduction strategy. I repeat, economic growth is an indispensable component that in my view is absolutely insufficient if economic growth does not ultimately have an impact in redrawing the social phase of our region. I'll conclude. If we are able to reduce poverty, inequality, and social exclusion by having the courage to invest more and better, and I underscore better, mm -hmm. on nutrition, health, education, and decent jobs, then we will be contributing to the strengthening democracy and the region. That in addition to the issues that you are working and that I admire, building strong democratic institutions with the judicial system, the Congress, freedom of the press, human rights. If we are able to reduce poverty, inequality, and social exclusion, then people will begin recovering faith in a democracy again. That democracy that for almost 80 years was not able to deliver results to the poor. I want to conclude by saying that political democracy makes very little sense if ultimately it is not accompanied by economic and social democracy at the micro, micro, micro level. If we are able to reduce poverty, inequality, and social exclusion by investing in a good quality of education, health, nutrition, 
then we might be preventing the expansion of an empty populism in the region. And I want to be clear, that emergency of populism that we are seeing today in the region is not the cause of the problem. It is just the, the result of our inability to have to grow and reduce poverty and inequality. That populism is not the cause of the problem. And so I hope that during this exchange, and I apologize for having taken and answered your question a little bit long. But hopefully we will land it at the micro level as to the policy recommendations Good. with the risk that that implies. Let's go there next. And let me uh, pose the following two questions to you. Uh, it seems to me, and we've talked about this, there are a number of d dilemmas that a well-intentioned democratic and social reformer faces from a presidential perspective. One, on the one hand, you know better than anyone in this room if you want to bring in foreign investment, as you did, if you want to stabilize the economy, as you did, you need budgetary discipline. You can't be running massive fiscal deficits. Number two, um, you've got to uh, uh, create an overall architecture of macroeconomic uh, stability. This means uh, every, you know, every dollar you spend on one thing, you can't spend on another. So you have to make choices. Some of the choices you have to make are between the long-range investments in human capital through education and so on, most of all education, uh, that are going to create a more productive, creative, entrepreneurial, internationally competitive workforce so you can capture your more than fair share of the Chinese market, and I admire you for it. Uh, and at the same time, People can't eat education in the moment. Uh, if their kids are hungry uh, and uh, sick uh, and uh, their families are uh, desperate for work. So how do you balance? And what did you learn as president during your five years about balancing the long-term needs for social investments with the near-term needs to lift people up, give them hope, give them some immediate relief, and reach down uh, to that micro level of poverty? Could it have been more appropriate your question at this moment, uh, Laurie, and I thank you very much. Um, the first time I went to China was in 1975. And my first impression, I went as an academician. We pretended to be an academician. My first impression was that in China, poverty was very equally distributed. I don't think that's the name of the game. We need to grow. Because I don't want to redistribute poverty. Mm -hmm. So the, we need to simultaneously, in my experience, manage the economy responsibly, to grow in a more equilibrated way, to diversify the internal composition of economic growth, to depend less on ex external factors, and produce sustained rates of economic growth, number one. Number two. It would be lying someone who will suggest to you that they can eliminate poverty overnight or in one term. Given the magnitude of poverty and the magnitude of inequality and social exclusion. But if we make progress, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that we need to make decisions explicit in the social area. With all due respect, uh, for those who believe in the mighty God of the free market, and I do, but I don't, I'm not fanatic, I don't believe in the effectiveness of trickle-down. Mm -hmm. 
So we need to grow, but at the same time, construct explicit, deliberate social policies for the short term and for the medium and long run. In the medium and long run, there is no way. I don't know anything in the world. And listen, to go from Shushine to be a president, I had to do around the world several times and pay double the price. I don't know any more effective weapon in the world to free people from poverty and not be just a result of a statistical error, as Alejandro Toledo, is investing in nutrition, health, and education, quality of education, quality of education, teacher training. You know, one of the first decisions I've made, some of you already have heard me, when the first decision I made as a president on July 28, 2001, for an inexperienced president and inexperienced politicians, I learned my, my child was on the job training. I decided to reduce 21% of military spending to invest in health and education. The generals were about ready to kill me. They didn't, they didn't like it to cut the budget at 21%. I doubled the salaries of the teachers in real terms, in real terms. But to be very honest, I don't know what the impact has been. We didn't follow it. We didn't measure it. We distribute over 50 million books free. I don't know what the impact has been, to be very honest. I don't know whether the teacher read the books or whether they distributed the books to the, to the students. My point is, there are some measures in the, in the medium and long term, nutrition, health, and education. But you have to monitor closely to trying to do a cost-benefit analysis of what we are investing in health and education to see that a well-invested and at a good quality of education and good quality of health. There is no country in the world, and I'm not saying anything new, that could come up out of underdevelopment or poor can be free from poverty without investing in education. And I want to pick it up that later on. In the short term, however, there are people who are in extreme, extreme poverty. You cannot wait to say, listen, we are going to invest on your human capital, but that takes about 18, 20 years. By then, they are dead. We have, we have created two programs. My experience that I want to share, it's a micro, micro. We create a program that's called Juntos together. Once we already grew for four consecutive years, we decided, well, listen, we already, now we have, we get out of a recession, we have some money, and we're ready to invest. Because, and we're going to begin with the poorest of the poorest. And I want to go very rapidly about this, this experience. This program, Juntos, the most difficult task is to identify who is the truly poor. That's very difficult. We send it, we did a pilot study. We began at a, in the mountains in the state of Ayacucho, where it was hardly hit by terrorism. And we said, now that we have identified the target group as a pilot, 30% of the decision of who is the poorest came also from the own community. We said, we, we're going to do a program that is called Direct Condition Subsidy to the Extreme Poor. My God, the IMF went bananas. <laughs> My <laughs> Minister of, for, uh, of Finance said, are you crazy, President? This is going to 
create as a fiscal deficit, we are gonna have inflation and we have worked so hard, your prestige outside is so high, you are gonna destroy everything. The program consists in the following. We give them to this group, that women, women. I don't know why people who give this Nobel Prize in the world in economics have not been able to discover yet that the best economists in the world are the poor women of the world. They have the ability to administer scarcity as you would never believe. And they, re they repay their loan more promptly than the big corporations because they don't have lawyers or accountants to make the tricks on them. <laughs> the women are the target groups. We give them $30. But they have to meet some conditions. Number one, the women who are pregnant, they have two, two prenatal checkups, two postnatal checkups. They have to. As soon as the kids uh, are born, they have to vaccinate them, and they have to take the kids to school. If they do that, we give them the equivalent to $30. They never have seen that much money, and there is not a bank to give it to them. We'll discover, we discover an unintended good result. We discovered that 20% or the target group did not exist. Did not exist formally. They didn't have any identification, a birth certification. Therefore, the whole macroeconomic figure was bullshit. <laughs> because they would work in, the income per capita is your overall production by the number of people you have. But there's 20% who did not exist. The result is beautiful. Of course, my minister of finance was uh, very angry at me. So I said, my friend, it is you or I. So I'm asking you for your resignations today. So I fired who was my vice minister, who now is a minister of President Garcia. I wanted to go with the project. The IMF said, Mr. President, you know, if you, do, you begin with subsidies again, you are going to go back again to the same terms. So I told what I told you tonight. Economic growth is an indispensable component. You have to manage it responsibly. But at the end, it only makes sense if it ends up in reshaping the social phase of the poorest of the poorest. Besides, this is not a permanent policy. It's only to survive the extreme poverty and then you go into another project. Second micro experience. The identification of women poor who knows how to knit or to do some craft work mm -hmm. or some agriculture of subsistence. If you put them in five or 10 families together and you train them about a project and you provide them a microcredit, and the evidence in the world is abundant. And also, you bring them close to the market to place the products that they produce. Those women fly high. They don't need anything to be given away. I'm answered to your question. Number one, we need to manage the economy responsibly to continue growing without creating inflation. Number two, Economic growth is an indispensable component to any poverty reduction strategy. Number three, we need to go at the micro, micro level. I have been working in the World Bank and the United Nations at Harvard, uh, at Stanford, at the macro level, and then as a president. But I didn't see the results. It's a beauty to pick up just a small group, work with them, and see the results there. That's why I have created this foundation, this global center for development and democracy, that go back to the micro, micro level. 
I'm sorry for being. No, this is wonderful. Out. And I want to go down to an even more micro level, if I could. Uh, there's an, and then I'd like to come to the most macro level of these global institutions. There's another micro challenge, um, and that uh, within the community of these women trying to lift up their, their, their families, uh, and that's the men. Now, you know, uh, we know sometimes, I, I think you have discovered from your own experience sometimes that uh, the men of the community, when they get their hands on the money, uh, they don't always spend it in the most uh, long-term human capital raising way. Uh, Juntos had an interesting strategy for um, preempting this uh, threat. Maybe you could share it with people. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I forgot this is, this is very important. This is very important because the experience in the world, it, it really converges. In India, in Philippines, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Peru, poverty, extreme poverty, is associated with the high consumption of alcohol on the part of the men. So if they discover that the women have received the equivalent of $30, they go. When they're drinking, they don't have more money, they go trying to grab the money away from the woman. Well, we decided to say, listen, we're going to give you $30 and also a whistle that you hold over, over here. A whistle, right? How do you call it? A whistle? Mm -hmm. If one man drunk comes to take your money away, you blow the whistle and all the women of the town come out and beat the hell out of the, <laughs> the guy. Moreover, moreover, the community decided that out of, out of the $30, they voluntarily agreed to donate, to donate $3 for the improvement of the community, voluntarily. Third, when you have 300 families, and each one have $30, well, you have quite a lot of money. And so there's a market. So they don't only do agriculture of subsistence. That's an economy that begins to turn around. And if you provide them some training, some microcredit, and also some infrastructure in the world to take the products to the market, and help them to be competitive in the market, it's a, it's a beauty at a micro, micro level. I'm not, I'm not discriminating over here against men. I'm saying women have proved that they have an incredible ability to administer scarcity, to come out, out of poverty only if you ha they have a chance. They don't want really to be given fish away. As men and women do, we're poor. That is why I'm very angry with the populism that is emerging. Because it's an insult, in my view, to the dignity of the poor. The poor want to have the right to learn how to fish, not to stand in, mm -hmm. in the hand to be given away, because that's bread for today, hunger for tomorrow. Now, let me go to the most macro level. Who's going to blow the whistle on the IMF? And uh, it's long-standing, it seems, fairly inflexible insistence on rigid macroeconomic formulas that deny presidents trying to navigate between these two imperatives of social justice and response and macroeconomic uh, stability, the flexibility to do necessary and creative things. And what do you think needs to be done to reform, reorient, uh, the big uh, global economic institutions? Well, number one, my experience in the World Bank and missions with the IMF before, when I, before I was a president, allowed me to know the animal from within. And so when uh, a friend of mine uh, 
Rodrigo Rato, who was the director of the IMF, sent his deputy to ask kindly, what is this thing about direct condition subsidy? And I explained it to them, and they were a little bit disappointed about me. They said, come on, you're the guy from the World Bank. You, you, you've been at Stanford, you've been at Harvard. Why are you messing this up? I said, listen, would you tell Mr. Rather from my part that this is a presidential decision independently of the IMF, then I'm going to do it. And I did it. Now, they are now in love with, with the project, in love with the project, so much so that I conspire so that the next government will not discontinue, conspire mutually with the IMF and the World Bank. So the projects continue. And now the population is wider. Now, we need to understand that that's not a, a permanent policy. That's for the short run. The medium and long term is nutrition, health, and education, and decent jobs. Today is not, it's not enough to have a job. We have to have a dignified jobs with dignified remuneration. There are some people who are taking advantage on the oversupply of labor. And really, for example, this spurt about agro-industry in Peru is working very well. It's labor-intensive. They're making a hell of a lot of money, and they're not sharing. They're not paying them well. So number one, for those who are in the, uh, on the borderline, we, you need to do this. At the end, the state is saving money. By vaccinating the kids, there's, the state is saving money, in, perhaps in 10 years, 15 years, because the probabilities of the kids who get sick are much lesser than not vaccinating the kids. Checking the, the prenatal and postnatal helps to save some lives. If you put the condition to go to the school, then you increase the possibility that the kids go to school. And so, once again, that's the difference between making a decision, thinking in the life and the next generation, instead of making decisions thinking on the next election. Since I was not able to be elected, I, have, I had no problem at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have. Uh, um, I thought we'd open it up now to uh, public uh, inquiry and uh, commentary. Uh, we have a microphone here and I think a microphone there. Uh, while people are maneuvering to raise their hands, anyone want to ask a question? I'll just ask the rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. How do we get a leader and not a politician as President of the United States? Uh, yes, go ahead. My question has to do with uh, farm subsidies in the United States and uh, would affect maybe the competition in um, Peru. In your estimation, how would that affect your ability to compete in, in, the, agro, uh, in the agro market? Thank you very much. The question is very relevant because we are just about uh, hopefully in a month or two months uh, to conclude the free trade agreement with the United States. But the free trade agreements only make sense if that becomes a, a train that pulls the medium and the small entrepreneurs. Free trade agreement should not be conceived only for those who are large millionaires. If we pull the medium and, medium and small entrepreneur, that's much more labor intensive, and we can place our products, grapes, mangoes, asparagus, artichokes, and the markets. And the uh, European Union, which is 500 million, and the United States, 300 million with an income per capita of $37,000, and China, and so, and also make us less dependent from uh, 
selling silver copper oil. Uh, that's with respect to the free trade agreement. With all due respect, I will repeat what I said five days ago to 21 presidents from Latin America and from Europe and Chile. Hope you will understand me. Don't tell us to do something that you don't practice. I'm suggesting for the need of uh, three ways that has two ways in, in the trade relationship. If you are asking us to play a game in the field of free market without subsidies, it is not fair that you subsidize your agricultural products while you are telling us that we shouldn't subsidize ours. So maybe instead of giving us more uh, food, free, just free you market, and maybe we can have a better relationship. Uh, apropos of the question I asked, I might observe that it would be slightly easier to do if in the process of our choosing next president, one of the most important agricultural states in the country was not the first one to decide who uh, is going to be the uh, nominee of each party uh, in about, uh, uh, well, only less than three months. Uh, is there someone from this side? Oh, please, go ahead. Um, I feel we're really fortunate. Is this working? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, we're really fortunate that we were able to are able to have you here and be able to talk to us directly, and um, it's our great gain. Um, my question is kind of a personal one. Um, you know, after you were done, uh, you know, in the presidency, there was a decision uh, to come to the states and, and participate with Stanford and all the. Um, but at the same time, I mean, Peru is losing out. Um, you know, could, could you share with us your your decision making process for that? Thank you very much. Well, number one, remember that I was, um, when I was intelligent before I got into politics, <laughs> I was in the academia or in an inter international organization. But I decided with all due respect to academicians, and I do respect them a lot, and have my full support, I decided to break the windows of academia to go into the dangerous field of making decisions. <laughs> there is something more than theory in life, huh? Secondly, you have to understand that after 10 years of, of being in politics, I decapitalized myself. I lost my human capital, so I need to come back to Stanford to recharge again. Number, number three, mind you, after such an intensive experience, only a gift like, such as uh, Stanford, who allow me, uh, me and my family finally to be together. I'm a human being. To have a soft landing at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Science Thanks to my friends, uh, the Dean of the School of Education, to Martin Carnoy, to Claude Steele, to a lot of people. After being surrounded by security and by newspaper people, it's beautiful to be surrounded by squirrels, by uh, birds uh, out there in the hill. Books. <coughs> Books, and, and, to, and to, to think and to process such an intensive experience. And finally, my friend, every player in a game needs a, re needs a rest. Give me a break. <laughs> in short, wait for the next few years. I might <coughs> add that President Toledo was very involved in working uh, with other recently serving presidents of Latin America to address these issues. And I believe he, in Latin America, is going to use his post-presidency as creatively as Jimmy Carter has since uh, he left his presidency. Someone over here? Yes, sir. Yes. Oh. Hi. 
Uh, you opened your uh, remarks with an observation that the Latin American region may be poised to become a bigger player on the world global scene. Um, I, and as I understand your remarks, you were saying that this opportunity could be seized through what you call political democracy, economic growth, through free, mar free markets, which would fund things like nutrition, education, et cetera. In the region, there seems to be at least one or two other competing philosophies coming out of, for example, Venezuela, Cuba, maybe uh, Bolivia, or maybe through non-governmental organizations like FARC. I was wondering if you felt that there might be some competition for the hearts and minds of people and whether you think these other sources of or other points of view are, are a significant threat to the future of Latin America, or do you think you, your point of view will prevail? Thank you very much. Thank you very much because uh, I forgot one advantage, one additional point of my argument to be cautiously optimistic about this possibility of making a significant jump to be a, a player in the world economy. And that's the problem. Now that the prices of the, of the minerals and raw materials, now that the prices are very high in the international market, not to our own doing. It's an entire factory. It's there. Just as we had some downs, now we're up. This is the best time. As the prices of natural resources are high in the world market, this is the best time to invest more and better in human resources. The second, no. Precisely I said there is some challenge that we have to overcome. Uh, my optimism is not free of challenges, but I think that if we have the courage, we have more leadership, we, we can overcome it. And that is, I don't think that there's new currency. People, as I travel the world, ask me, Mr. President, what is happening in Latin America? Is, is the region going left again? And I said, no. I have too much respect for the left to give the credit that this populism is part of the left. If there is a new Way of thinking, good. Fernando Enrique Cardoso has been part of the left. And he's honest enough to say, listen, please don't read my, the books that I wrote before I was a president. <laughs> but he, has, he got a content. Now what you have is a lot of money. And not because you have earned it for a responsible management of your economy. It's, you have a lot of money because of some exogenous factors. I don't, I, I, I do see, I do see that this is very much involved in the challenge. If we're able to reduce poverty, that tendency of emerging empty populism will decrease. People will begin believing again that democracy is not just the act of going to vote in an election day. People will, find that democracy could deliver. People will, will believe that what they're offering, we already have seen in the past. But as Larry Diamond adequately has, has said at the beginning, some of the data suggests that 54% of Latin America would prefer an authoritarian regime to a democratically elected government provided that they give them jobs, provided that they can see light at the end of the tunnel. So if we are able to meet these challenges, we are able to make that jump. Please. Yes, uh, I would like to follow up on your uh, enthusiastic description of the program Juntos, and especially the microcredit program, to ask you whether uh, you, the Peru has at the moment resources to reach all the population that needs these programs. 
and regarding the microcredit program, uh, how far do you see that uh, uh, taking people to a situation where they have the dignified jobs you were talking about? The program Juntos, as I said, is not a permanent program that the direct condition subsidy program. The second component of identifying micro projects that require some training, some microcredit, and also bring them closer to the market. I think it is, the, the, the land is very fertile for it. And it not, need not necessarily come only from the government, the microcredit, not only for, from the government. I'm sure the world, we can pull around the world, and I have talked to some of uh, colleagues of mine, former colleagues of mine, who are willing to. The Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, even the IMF, I, can't, I cannot believe it, that they will be ready, provided that they can re have a return. It's not a giveaway, it's just give an opportunity. Now, let's place this in the, in the context of the numbers. In Peru, we were able to reduce poverty from 54% to 45%. That's almost 10 percentage point. I'm not pleased. The number's still very high. But for them, you don't have to give them away. Just give an opportunity. If the economy grow, continues growing at this level, it's growing between 6 and 8%. My friend, July 28, 2006, when I concluded my, my government, the economy grew 9.2%. And the economy is growing up. But if we diversify the internal composition of growth, instead of depending so much on mining, which is foreign exchange generated, but it's not very labor intensive, then maybe agriculture at the medium and small level, crafts, ecotourism, ecotourism is labor intensive. And you gave me a great opportunity uh, to make a point that I did not make during my, my presentation. And that is, it's an enormous challenge to grow sustainably, to make that the benefits of growth reach to the poor, and to do that in the context of a sustainable development, where we have the responsibility of not destroying the Amazon, the water, because we have the responsibility to leave Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, Latin America for the next generations, because we can resolve the poverty today. People who are in extreme, extreme poverty, Larry, you know this. Mm -hmm. They don't have money to buy fuel to cook. How micro can you get? They don't have fuel to cook. They don't have money. So they bring down a tree in order to have to make fire to make the cook. But you're bringing down a tree. And to understand that it's 45% of people who are poor, you're bringing a lot of trees down. So sustainable development. And that's why, I, my view, I have to congratulate some members of the Stanford community, as well as to Vice President Al Gore, that got a Nobel Prize for this issue of being concerned about global warming. And in our case, seeing more from the perspective of a sustainable development. I don't know if I answer all your questions. This young woman, do we have time for one no. more question? I, you know, I think, I know that there are many, many people who still have questions, but there are just as many people who are hungry. <laughs> and all this talk about making sure that people are fed makes me think that we need to uh, address both of your needs. Um, our, our speakers will be here and um, 
you may have an opportunity if you're really fast to be able to get to them and Okay, could I okay. ask you uh, could, please to... I, I do uh, want to be respectful of yeah. people's, um, many people scheduled this in. I, I know that there are students here who need to go to classes, so I really do want to conclude this evening. And um, But no, I'm, I'm sorry, ma'am, but if you could just wait until afterwards and then maybe you can talk to President Toledo uh, yourself. Yes, yes. But I'm going to close this um, by just saying to our two presenters that I... Um, and I know I speak from all of us, that we're just incredibly privileged to have the two of you as our colleagues and our friends, and very grateful. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.